We'd found an old Bosch dugout, and he knew, and gave us hell, for shell on frantic shell hammered on top, but never quite burst through. Rain, guttering down in waterfalls of slime, kept slush waist-high, that rising hour by hour choked up the steps too thick with clay to climb. What murk of air remained stank old and sour, with fumes of whiz-bangs and the smell of men who'd lived there years and left their curse in the den, if not their corpses. There we heard it from the blast of whiz-bangs, but one found our door at last, buffeting eyes and breath, snuffing the candles and thud, flump, thud, Down the steep steps came thumping and splashing in the flood, deluging muck, the sentry's body, then his rifle, handles of old Bosch bombs and mud in rock on rock. We dredged him up for killed until he whined, Oh, sir, my eyes, I'm blind, I'm blind, I'm blind. Coaxing, I held a flame against his lids and said if he could see the least blurred light, he was not blind, in time they'd get all right. I can't, he sobbed. Eyeballs, huge, bulged like squids, watch my dream still. But I forgot him there, in posting next for duty, and sending a scout to beg a stretcher somewhere, and floundering about to other posts under the shrieking air. Those other wretches, how they bled and spewed, and one who would have drowned himself for good. I try not to remember these things now. Let dread hark back for one word only. How, half listening to that sentry's moans and jumps, and the wild chattering of his broken teeth, renewed most horribly whenever crumps pummeled the roof and slogged the air beneath. Through the dense din, I say, we heard him shout, I see your lights, but ours had long gone out. The Sentry by Lieutenant Wilfred Owen, 5th Battalion, the Manchester Regiment, inspired by an incident near beaumont Mel, the Somme, January 1917. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 30, the Psalm, the Aftermath. As far as admin notes, 92 reviews. Guys, thank you so much, so much. Um, Really appreciate it. Um, That's that's really about it for admin notes. Okay, well, we are here at the end of the Battle of the Psalm. If you think you've heard me mention this more than once, you are correct. And that's mainly because I'm still wrapping my head around this. Uh, I really can't believe I got this thing done. So please allow me some navel gazing, but later at the end of the episode. Wilfred Owen never served on the Somme while the great battle was taking place. Rather, 
He came to the scene of the big push in January 1917, where his battalion held the line near beaumont Mel. It was during a stint in the front line, such as it was, that he suffered through a German bombardment where a sentry near him was blinded. He also wrote home about the dugout next to his, over which the sentries there were, quote, blown to nothing, end quote. Ever since I heard Owen's poems read aloud, they have stayed with me, all the way from when my 12th grade English teacher read Dulce e Decorum Est to my class. But I have also heard Owen's poem, The Sentry, read aloud, and the shocking and visual nature of that particular poem has haunted me since I began to really listen to it. As it was inspired by events that took place on the psalm, seemed like it was a natural fit here. Psalm. The whole history of the world cannot contain a more ghastly word. These words of German soldier Friedrich Steinbrecher are now famous and oft quoted, and they too fit. Steinbrecher survived the psalm, but was killed in action in April of 1917. His words, simple and yet evocative, remain powerful today. For the psalm was a ghastly word at the end of 1916, and it spoke of a ghastlier place than anyone could ever imagine. After operations formally ceased on the 18th of November, the Tommies, Poilus, and Frontschwein settled into their positions and braced themselves for what loomed as a brutal winter in the wasteland. For the British, Dominion, and French troops who had to make their way up to the front line, theirs was a mind and backbreaking slog through a land wiped of all identity by shellfire and greasy mud. When the biting cold came, it was actually welcomed as the frozen ground was easier to walk on. But there were scenes of madness, sometimes literally. Lieutenant Edgar Lord of the 15th Lancashire Fusiliers encountered the following scene. The mud was so bad, plowing our way to the front line, we found two English soldiers up to their armpits in mud, one dead. The other facing him was stark mad. We gave him food and got him out as soon as we could, but he died. They had been stuck for 48 hours, Lord remembered. Private Henry Butt of the 4th Canadian Division also recalled grimly, eating your meals with dead Germans' boots staring you in the face out of the parapet. Also, we are using the dead bodies of Fritz to step on in the trenches to get out of the mud. We don't take any more notice of a dead person now than we do of a rat. In this scene of utter desolation, an other world of unspeakable horrors, the soldiers manning the line had to have asked themselves more than once, what was this all for, and was it worth it? To examine that question, let's start with what the Entente powers had gained. Territorially, the Battle of the Somme had seen the transfer of 
a couple hundred square miles of French territory from the occupying Germans to the French and British. At its deepest point, the British and French legions had penetrated up to seven miles into enemy-occupied land. Seven miles forward in four months. A distance that an adult human could walk in just a few hours. On the battle's 30-mile-wide front, the forward push was uneven, however, and the ground gained was shockingly devastated. Behind the British and French front lines lay a plain of formerly bucolic farmland now scoured and scorched into a hellscape of mud, broken trees, and broken bodies. Tactically, the British expeditionary force had started the battle on the low ground, had gained the high ground it needed, then kept pushing until it found itself on low ground again at the end of the battle. Strategically, things were different. 1916 was a year where Germany saw that it had lost the advantage. Tactically, the Germans had retained most of their skills, but tactics could only withstand so much steel and iron being thrown at it. And in the Battle of Materiel, the German Reich was seeing itself increasingly fall behind. French artillery shell production was in full swing despite temporary shortages due to battle. British production was increasing greatly as well. It was an oft-quoted statistic that for every shell the Germans sent out, the British could put out four. The Germans were also strained to the breaking point by the general Allied offensive in 1916. The offensive at Verdun created one open wound for the German army. Italian attacks on the Isonzo further strained the fraying Austrians, which further strained the Germans on the Eastern Front, and that was before Brusilov smashed the Austrians there in June. Then came the big push on the Somme, and then came Romania's entry into the war. While all of these were eventually dealt with and or contained, the Germans spent 1916 putting out fires everywhere. Casualties between the German 1st and 2nd armies on the Somme for the period of July through November swing wildly with a range of almost 200,000 between figures, depending on the source. And listener Phil set me right before I embarrassed myself. In the Battle of Verdun podcast, I used the figure of 600,000, and this is not correct. Based on the German Reichsarchiv, Figures, the German army lost some 164,000 men listed as killed or missing, with men taken prisoner counted among the missing. French and British forces claimed they captured some 80,000 German troops during the course of the battle, so that means around 80 to 85,000 Germans were killed in four months on the Somme. The figure of 80,000 men taken as prisoners also points to a clear and growing problem of morale within German forces. Such losses in prisoners would have been unthinkable just two years prior. German figures for wounded were given by the Reichsarchiv as 273,000 
bringing total losses on the Somme to around 437,000 men. There apparently has been a lot of cooking the books on German losses, with the numbers having been inflated to much higher in order to justify Haig's leadership during the battle. We're, we're not going down that road, though. Add the number 437,000 to the 337,000 casualties at Verdun, and right here, you have a growing manpower crisis. Another year of war, another generation of men gutted and hollowed out. The loss of ground to the English and French was also a blow to the German army, and they fought tenaciously and maniacally to hold it. At the end of November, the Germans still held the last low ridges before the hub town of Bapome, the prize long coveted by Douglas Haig. But German commanders saw now that the current situation on the Western Front was untenable. A change would have to be made, and already in September, work had begun on a new defensive line 25 miles back from the Somme Front. Using forced labor, the Germans constructed a massive defense complex of trenches, pillboxes, and mutually supportive defense points named the Hindenburg Line. The losses caused by Verdun and the Somme created an alarming need to shorten the front as a whole in order to cull together some type of reserve component. In February and March, the strategic retreat was conducted and with that, the Somme, the scene of countless struggles and lonely, unrecorded deaths, became part of the seemingly endless rear areas of the British Expeditionary Force. In their retreat, the Germans outdid themselves in nastiness by conducting their first Fibranta Erda campaign as they pulled their forces back. Every village was devastated and left mined Wells were caved in, every fruit tree was cut down. They left a swath of desolation as they pulled back to their new front line. As French troops entered the destroyed town of Peron on the Somme, they were greeted with a hand-painted sign hanging from the wrecked town hall. Nicht argeren, nur wunderen. Don't be angry, just be amazed. Some German soldiers were hardening, and the forces that would lead to the next war were already breeding in the hearts of these embattled and ever more embittered men. A quote with a menacing undertone in Sheldon's The German Army on the Somme reveals many a German soldier's feelings. Homeland, dear beloved homeland, whenever you see a fighter who was there at the Somme, bow low to the ground because you simply do not know what he did for you. It was different with other Germans, however. The summer of 1916 saw the destruction of the last of the professional soldiers of 1914, the last of the old salts whose knowledge was irreplaceable. Some Germans, who were feeling the weight of four months of endless slaughter keenly, weren't so quick to defend their shell holes to the death. During the Battle of the Ancre, some 7,000 Germans were taken prisoner. 
On the first day of the big push, less than 1,900 had been captured. Even General Ludendorff noted that the Battle of the Ancre dealt the German army a particularly heavy blow. And he no doubt noticed that the quality of the individual German soldier had deteriorated. Back home, the blockade was putting a squeeze on the Reich as a whole, and starvation was not a distant threat as the winter of 1916 to 1917 approached. It was the strain of the Somme, the blockade, and Germany's decreasing fortunes in the war that led to the decision to unleash unrestricted submarine warfare in the Atlantic in 1917. That action and the resulting carnage in the seas directly led to the entry of a new adversary, the United States. On the other side of the barbed wire, the French army faced another year of war, not having successfully concluded the Battle of the Somme with a breakthrough or resounding success. The Poilus of the 6th and 10th armies had pushed the front lines on the Somme forward several kilometers to the very gates of Peron and had lost anywhere from 196,000 to 204,000 of their brothers in the great battle. Again, many thanks to listener Phil for the help here as well. For the French, these losses, coupled with 377,000 casualties at Verdun, 1916 also strained France to the limit of her manpower. As the year ended, the British took over the French 6th Army sector north of the Somme, bringing the British right flank to the river itself. The French needed the relief to shorten their line and build up their own reserves. They were exhausted by the war and the lack of victories. French political and military leadership began to pay the price. General Foch, the commander of the Groupe d'Armée du Nord, was sacked at the end of the year and relegated to purgatory. He wouldn't be there long. His time was coming, and he would end the war as the supreme Allied commander. Joffre himself was promoted upwards into a useless position that got him out of the way to be replaced by the dashing and supremely self-confident Robert Nivelle. Although exhausted and its spirits dampened by Les Cafards, the depression that affected French forces in the Great War, the Poilus and Biffin could look back at a year of brutal learning and improvement. They were a tough army, and on the Somme, they took the lessons learned at heavy cost at Verdun and delivered some solid beatings to their German foes. The Frenchman had proved himself once again a more than capable soldier. He was a dogged fighter and a match for the Bosch. Someone who had also proved himself resilient and more than capable of going toe-to-toe with the Germans was the British soldier. With proper training, the men of the British Expeditionary Force had shown how the enemy could be routed. Despite the mud, the rain, a fiercely determined German army, and the grinding exhaustion of a brutal 141-day slog, the British army was coming into its own. The British army was no longer an army of amateurs. 
By this time, all 50-some divisions of the army had gone through the Somme, and the BEF had definitely upped its game on the battlefield. An excerpt from Professor Philpott's Bloody Victory, a statement made by Australian Lieutenant Arthur Waterhouse, captured the feeling of the British Expeditionary Force in November. Quote, I was with the infantry when they took those places and could not help feeling at the time that we had got level with the people who had repulsed us when we last had a go at beaumont Mel. Under these circumstances, the Germans could not hold on. End quote. The gunners, too, were much better at their jobs than they were back in July, and they were skilled at isolating areas on the ground with a ring of hellfire. RFC pilots showed great courage and not a little bit of recklessness in taking on the German Luftstreitkräfte in perpetually inferior machines. The Australians, Canadians, New Zealanders, and others were becoming quite skilled at their trade. The artillery and the infantry were working together more than had ever before been seen, even if there was still substantial room for improvement. All of this had come at an unimaginable price. During operations on the Somme between the 1st of July and the 18th of November, the British Expeditionary Force had suffered a total of 420,000 casualties. Over 100,000 men were killed in the four months of hemorrhage and horror. Back home and across the empire, communities were devastated as the casualty lists made their way into local newspapers. The PALS battalions were gone. The neighborhoods these men hailed from lay in stunned grief from when news that not one or two, but dozens of local men had been killed or wounded. The PALS unit's distinctive character would never recover from the song. To make sure entire communities weren't so dreadfully affected next time, the British military authorities ended the practice of replacing these units with local men. Drafts now came from elsewhere, anywhere. By the end of the battle, every division in the, in the British army had fought on the Somme at least once. And here is one reason why the Somme retains such a heavy place in British memory even today. Everyone went through it. Every man in the BEF had been through the Somme and witnessed its misery and horror. Every family back home had a man who had been there, and many had a man who had not come back. The British Army, though, would need to keep its edge as it manned the trenches through the winter. France was exhausted, and within a very short time, the BEF would have to assume the burden of being the main effort on the Western Front. So, who won the Battle of the Somme? I think we can safely say the British and French armies were the victors here. Given that they had been the ones advancing, if at a snail's pace at times, and finished the battle with material superiority and the strategic advantage, they were the victorious side. Had it been a necessary battle? So, many times we hear of the tragedy of the Somme, and no doubt I've used it here as well. The lessons learned came at such an enormous cost in men, but 
1916, the Allies had no other real options. The wearing out battle had to take place. The German army had to be ground down. German Captain von Henting would never have uttered his famous words, the Somme was the muddy grave of the German field army, had the Somme never happened. So, the Battle of the Somme was a necessary battle, although its lessons could have been absorbed much faster than they were. New tactics and new weapons were introduced here. British artillery tactics were much improved in four months, and the infantry learned to not attack in dense waves as a whole. The tank made its debut. Aircraft made themselves an ever more required branch of service if victory was to be realized. The war was much changed from those 19th century days of 1914. This was increasingly a war of impersonal machines that flail the earth and the men inside it. 1916 was a year of industrial scale killing and at its end, the war's end, was no closer in sight than it had been at the beginning of the year. 1917 dawned as a new year of the same war. More men, more shells, more tanks, and more airplanes would be needed. And many hundreds of thousands more men would go to France to keep the same rendezvous that Alan Seeger had kept. Seeger, an American, had joined the French Foreign Legion in order to get into the war. On the 4th of July, 1916, at Belois en santé on the Somme's French front, Seeger was killed in an assault on the German trenches. He is well known for his poem, I Have a Rendezvous with Death, a work that applied not just to him, but to many others that came after him. I have a rendezvous with death at some disputed barricade when spring comes back with rustling shade and apple blossoms fill the air. I have a rendezvous with death when spring brings back blue days and fair. It may be he shall take my hand and lead me into his dark land and close my eyes and quench my breath. It may be I shall pass him still I have a rendezvous with death on some scarred slope of battered hill when spring comes round again this year and the first meadow flowers appear. God knows twere better to be deep, pillowed in silk and scented down, where love throbs out in blissful sleep, pulse nigh to pulse and breath to breath, where hushed awakenings are dear. But I have a rendezvous with death at midnight in some flaming town, when spring trips north again this year, and I to my pledged word am true, I shall not fail that rendezvous. All right, so here we are now for the navel gazing. So, like I said, it's gonna take me a while to understand that I am no longer required to read books on the psalm with every free moment I have. Um, this is because if you count from where I began reading for this project uh, that I've been 
working on. I have been working on the psalm for over two years. Um, I want to do the Mike Duncan thing and count my episodes and the words written and all that, but I'll, I'll post those figures on Twitter and uh, the Facebook later on. Um, biggest thing is to offer thanks here uh, and now to all of you out there who have listened and stayed with the BFWWP through this long journey through the psalm. Many thanks as well to listener Bob, who without hesitation let me borrow a large stack of his books for research. He let me borrow those books coming up on two years ago, and Bob, you will most definitely get them back. Big shout-outs to... Dr. Jeff Gusky and Professor William Philpot for taking the time to come on the little podcast that could here. Uh, what opportunities they were to listen to those gentlemen speak. Shout out to Lee at the Viking Age podcast, my stepson, but also my man who is always ready to talk podcast shop and help me shape strategy for this thing. Big shout out to my family who has put up with hearing more stuff about World War I than anyone who's not a great war enthusiast should ever have to hear. Last, but never ever least, a shout out to Mrs. BFWWP, who so graciously allowed the Battle of the Somme map to hang on her kitchen wall for well over six months. I am utterly, utterly spoiled. With the end of the psalm, I'm going to consolidate my two projects by shutting down the Battle of Redon podcast and migrating those 14 episodes over onto the BFWWP. That will be happening soon, and I will make an announcement just before it does. Financially, this is a good move, and I've waited a long time to make it happen. So, the Verdun episodes will be re-released on here soon. What about new material, you might be asking? Right, so way, way back in my introductory episode, I said I was going to do the psalm and then the three battles of Ypres. Seeing my production and release schedule for the psalm, my covering Ypres now means at least a three-year project, and honestly, I am just not ready for that right now. So I've changed my mind. It's now February 2018, and if I bust my hump, I can cover the American Meuse-Aragon Offensive in time for its centenary, which comes this September. That was a 47-day battle, and after the psalm, seriously, it's going to be a cinch to write this thing. That's sarcasm. The psalm was originally supposed to be 11 episodes. So, I will be going dark for a bit. There will be no new material coming out for some time. But please, don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. I'll also be on Twitter at at WW1podcast. And you can always go through the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook Anything Great War you'd like to share or discuss, hit me up. I'm always ready to talk First World War. 
Doing so keeps the memory of those men and women who took part in it alive. All right, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.